Hello and welcome to May I Have This Dance, a podcast from the Human Awareness Institute or Hi Among Friends. We're here because we love having real, rich, juicy conversations with people. We strip down with the people we interview, figuratively and only sometimes literally, to the undercurrent of what it means to be human through the lens of love, intimacy, and sexuality. As an organization, Hi is a place to explore and embrace our humanness. Obviously, a podcast can't replace our workshops, but we do hope that in these interviews, you're able to catch a glimpse of who we are and what we do. Shall I get started with the interview? Let's do it. It's episode four of May I Have This Dance, and this time we invite Erwan Davon of Erwan Davon Teachings for a twirl on the dance floor. Erwan works with his wife, Alicia, to help couples build stronger relationships. They specialized in helping their clients to experience lasting attraction and spark. What I really love about this episode is how wonderfully human Erwan is. He is fallible, fragile, and intimate, just like the rest of us. And even though he's been through some incredible challenges, he keeps doing the work to bounce back. It's really, truly inspiring. True. That was my experience of him as well. Shall we roll the tape? Yes. Let's get started. So thank you for coming to the podcast. Would you mind sharing what your name is and what your preferred pronouns are, please? My name is Erwan Davon, and my preferred pronoun is he. Is that, is that, uh, is that a preferred pronoun, he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And where are you living these days? Where are you coming from? I live in San Francisco. Uh, Before that, I lived a little bit in Berkeley. Before that, I grew up in New York City. And before that, I was born in Paris. Oh, wow. I didn't actually think I realized that. I I knew you spent some time on the East Coast, but I wasn't aware that you were born in Paris. How long did you live in France? I think Paris is the far East Coast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, only till I was two. I came over when I was two with my parents and uh, we settled in New York City and uh, that's pretty much where I grew up. Et parlez-vous français? Oui, je parle français. Well, let's try and keep this in English though. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. So you came over when you were about two. So both your parents, are they French? Both my parents are French and, uh, you know, it was interesting being born in France but coming over so young because I didn't really feel American and I didn't really feel French. So it was, you know, it was a little bit of slipping between the cracks of having a nationality. We say a little more about that. What, what was that like growing up? Did that persist with you? Where did you see the differences? You know, it, it, it really was difficult. Um, my parents separated uh, shortly after I got here. Their relationship was on the rocks since before I was born. Uh, so, the, you know, the family dissolved and there, there wasn't really quite a nationality and then I didn't have any brothers and sisters. And so it, it really was like slipping between the cracks in a kind of in a larger way, uh, not just in terms of having a nationality. And so it was difficult, you know, it was very difficult, uh, very difficult childhood. But when you're a child and you're having a difficult childhood, you don't really know that you're having a difficult childhood. (laughs) You know, you're just kind of having one. And 15 years of psychoanalysis later and so on, then you kind of realize like, oh, that was really difficult. So I know a little bit about your history in the work that you do, but let's like pick that up where it began. Where, 
where did you start questioning what was happening for you on the inside and how did you begin your personal journey? Well, the, you know, that difficult childhood uh, really turned into being in therapy as a teenager. My mother had left uh, the country when I was seven. I saw her a handful of times after that. She died. My father had a stroke. It left him severely handicapped. He's still handicapped today. He still lives in New York. And all of that uh, put me into therapy at the age of 15 years old. I had an obsessive compulsive disorder. I couldn't function. You know, I went into school at uh, 11 a.m. I had one class, then I had lunch, then I had another class. One of those two classes was stress management. I went to therapy multiple times a week. I was in psychoanalysis as a 15-year-old kid multiple times a week. My uncle had the intelligence to put me into an intense structure like that early because I really needed it. And that really started the sort of inward journey. And the psychoanalysis didn't really help with the obsessive compulsive disorder too much, but it really did start me uh, looking inwards. And uh, later I, I went to an expert with OCD and, and that uh, helped the OCD and I recovered from that. But the inward journey really started in psychoanalysis uh, in New York City at the age of 15. Then I went to a very open-minded college, uh, university, the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I started studying psychology. And I started studying Buddhism, and I took some Buddhist-type uh, classes, history of Buddhism, and so on. Then I... Uh, got uh went and lived in a zen monastery for a few weeks and then a few years later lived in the zen monastery for uh part of a year and that uh you know that's probably the start of it then i was uh taking every workshop on the planet every rebirthing class i possibly could every sort of new age thing and so on and uh eventually was teaching those courses for a couple of different organizations. Um, one of them's an international one, and that's basically how I started teaching, sort of studying all that stuff, dealing with myself, teaching for other people. And then eventually I opened up a, you know, sort of my own shop, you know, sort of put out my shingle, you know, opened up my own shop. And the area that I was particularly interested in was the area of romantic relationships, relationships between people, and started focusing all of that kind of spiritual journey and psychological journey in the area of sex and sensuality and romance because, you know, I was just interested. That sounds like a really good summary of the kind of geographic and, and factual side of it, but I sense there's also a really deep emotional journey that's happened there from from like a very difficult childhood to all this personal growth and and that sort of thing what is the biggest thing that surprised you on that front uh the biggest thing that's that's a great question Haya. the biggest thing that surprised me on that front <laughs> was and still is how difficult it is uh you know i mean it was uh you know my teenage year you know having the obsessive compulsive disorder and you know, the, the uh, basically obliterated family situation, uh, including my extended family. I won't get into all those details. Um, but it, I mean, it was profoundly difficult. Like I really couldn't function. I felt incredibly 
uh, alone. Um, I really was incredibly alone. And the, the what surprised me was the, the experience of that and the uh, intensity of that. Um, so I think that's what surprised me the most. So, you know, you mentioned that you had pretty severe loss really young, that your mother passed away when you were a teenager. Is that right? She, you, yeah. You that right. young, yeah. And your father, you know, suffered uh, illnesses. And then you eventually found your way to Buddhism. And I'm curious whether there was a connection for you around, you know, how Buddhists tend to deal with loss and uh, could you speak a little bit about that? Well, yeah, they, you know, they, they deal with it very directly, <laughs> you know, especially, right. in, right? you know, my background is in Zen. So it's, you know, they, I remember living in a Zen monastery and it was my birthday and I thought, you know, I don't know, maybe we were going to do something. And I told the head monk and he said, we don't celebrate birthdays here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, that's kind of how they deal with loss. <laughs> mm. And it's really quite brilliant, actually, because, um, you know, for example, the first day I got to the, well, the day after the first day, the first morning I was in the Zen monastery, you know, you go to this big dark room at four o'clock in the morning, you can't really see anything. There's like 50 people in there dressed in black outfits. You have your little square mat, you know, three feet by three feet to sit on and you do that uh, for hours and they really don't give you any instructions. Um, So it threw me into the void. It threw me into emptiness. And that's kind of how Buddhists deal with loss is, you know, they throw you right into it. The Buddhist first noble truth was uh, life is suffering. So they kind of like expose you to that completely. And that really was the positive side of having so much difficulty at such a young age that I, I, you know, I, I had to go all the way through, or I was just going to die or be psychologically disabled forever. Um, and all the way through the pain and the suffering is that what you mean like going through, all the way through the pain and the suffering the losses mm-hmm. that life entails the severity of it the impermanence there's you know buddhist word for us to just just massive exposure uh to all of that and um you know the the bright side of it is that you know there is whatever we want to call it, you know, spirit or emptiness or God or Buddha consciousness, you know, there's something so infinitely bright, so infinitely, like reality is so infinitely bright. Um, so infinitely good. It's made of goodness, of brightness. You know, we, we are that. And it, it takes a certain type of disconnecting or unattachment from circumstances uh at least it did for me to realize that and uh that that was the bright side of it and and you know i thank my lucky stars that i that i had all that difficulty but that i also sort of got lucky in therapy and uh in zen to be sort of escorted through all of that to you know i don't know i like the word life Sometimes I use the word reality. You know, we could use Jesus if we like. <laughs> you know, I'm not Christian, but you know, whatever the word is we want to use. I'm really intrigued by 
you've just described two very different modalities of um, challenging yourself to dealing with things, right? One is the the intense therapy and and uh, that side of things to help deal with some very specific issues, and the other one is sitting on a square pillow and let the the pain wash over you. <laughs> and I feel like the two are about as different as you can possibly get. Do you feel like they play into each other or do they help you with different aspects of your life? Yeah, that's a great question, Haya. I, I find that there are two wings of, of, you know, let's be poetic, say the, the, the bird of liberation or the bird of freedom. I find that there are two, two sides of it. Nice. Um, we have four practices that we recommend our students do every day. One of them is meditation. That's the first one, the most important one. The second one is psychological inquiry. The third one is some kind of body practice, physical practice like yoga. And the fourth one is some kind of sensual touching practice. Uh, the, the first two are the most important, uh, even for romance and relationship and, you know, everything downstream. And I find that they're both necessary and spiritual environments tend to neglect the necessity of psychologically inquiring into and exploring the, the, the karmic knots or the places of difficulty, the childhood, the, the, the parenting, what we're left with from all that. We can get through that with just a meditation type method or a spiritual method, but most people don't because it's so hard to deal with that stuff kind of directly or spiritually or sort of in one gulp, if you will, just with presence. And then psychological environments tend to neglect uh, consciousness. They tend to neglect being. They tend to neglect uh, simply being awake or reality. They're focused more on uh, recalibrating psychological structures, having a healthy ego as opposed to what's beyond or outside of the ego. So I find that they're they're both they were certainly both necessary for me, and my experience is that they're uh, both necessary for most people, and they ultimately cover the same ground of being present. Uh, liberating oneself, not being in what we call one's relationship blueprint, one's sort of inherited cultural and familial patterning, sort of evolutionary patterning, if you will. Um, so I, I love that question. And it's very central to our work to include both of those uh, aspects. Yeah, for sure. You just mentioned we and practice and uh, all this. I, I sense that you do something like this for a living. Can you say a little bit more about what you do and why? Yeah. Yeah. You know, ever since I was 24 or 25, I've worked in this field. Uh, the, the history kind of led me to it. And as I was teaching for other people, I, you know, I was at a cafe one day and I took out a piece of paper and I just started writing down what am I the most interested in? And you know, right at the top of that list was women, <laughs> you know, and uh, so, you know, it was very illuminating for me even to say something so sort of basic and obvious. Um, and I, I was, I'm fortunate that that's really all I've ever done for a, for a living. You know, I did a little bit of body work to support myself early on. And I think I was a temp uh, for three days. 
also. Uh, but I just, you know, I was lucky enough to have these difficulties and sort of get educated in it early on. And then I just knew what I was interested in. And the last uh, almost 25 years have been working in this field, specializing in the romantic uh, side of it, because, you know, sort of an awake, ecstatic, sexually turned on relationship, intimate relationship, what we call an eternal date, requires not just being conscious and awake within ourselves, but it really requires two people doing that. And then also dealing with the sexual and romantic aspects, which I think may be the most challenging parts of life to really be awake, uh, romantically awake, sexually awake in the body to really include the sex drive in the experience of life in a conscious way. Um, and now my wife and I have been doing this, Alicia and I've been doing this for uh, since 2003 together, and, and I started doing it in 95 and would sort of typically do it with whoever my girlfriend was. I would just teach with whoever I was with at the time. And uh, doing it with my lifelong partner has just, you know, just made it that much more fun and hopefully that much more uh, supportive and impactful for people. Erwin, I... This is so wonderful. Thank you so much for just diving right into all the, you know, intimate pieces of your life. Um, one of the things I'm curious about is that, um, you know, it, it strikes me that you say so openly and so, um, and I think you do this in your work too, of the, you know, the attraction piece is one of the things that you and Alicia do so well is helping people to um, understand attraction, to cultivate healthy attraction within themselves, to have that be a piece of what creates ultimately long-term uh, success in relationship is my understanding of it. And um, what I'm curious about is attachment. And um, it strikes me that I didn't know about you that you lost your mother so young. And, you know, and then here you are in your 20s or 30s, however old you were, saying, you know, I'm, I'm interested in women. I want to understand women on a deep level. And I, there's a connection there in my mind. And I'm wondering if there's ever a connection for you around um, what it was like to have that kind of unique loss at a young age? And then how how has that played into this interest of connection and um, attachment with one's partner for you? Yeah. I mean, the situation with my mother basically created a hole in my soul, like a sort of a cavern of um, emptiness and grief and hurt and suffering. And, uh, you know, maybe a hole in my ego would be another way to put it. Uh, and a lot of dysfunction. And, uh, it, that, that was the difficult part. And then, but it also, when there's a hole in the ego, it also makes accessing the whole spiritual part that we talked about already easier because you can kind of, you know, you're sort of forced to deal with it or you just kind of go crazy, I guess. Um, so it, it, uh, supported me in not being attached and uh, that um, allows for uh, presence, consciousness, enjoyment, power, strength, uh, sort of qualities of being, qualities of consciousness, qualities of life, which enable me to relate to my wife without being so graspy or attached, um, which really facilitates love. Uh, 
So the, you know, the difficulty got kind of flipped on its head. And, you know, to, to, in all honesty, I still have to deal with the difficulty, you know, the hole in my ego. It's not like my ego's disappeared or anything, you know, so I still have to deal with the difficulty. I still have to deal with um, predispositions to unhealthy attachment, over attachment. Um, but the methods that uh, Haya asked about, they facilitate dealing with that. And then ultimately, that allows for, I hope I'm not being too, um, uh, you know, using too much jargon or something like that, but it, it allows for greater love. It allows for greater freedom. It allows for greater unattachment. Yeah. Does that communicate? That, that makes that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, earlier you mentioned that um, you're kind of trying to have a, a balanced practice between, uh, if I recall correctly, the mind, the spirit, the body, and eroticism. Um do you feel that it is difficult for you to keep that in balance or, or, or is it okay for sometimes that some of that is in more in the forefront and other times it kind of, one of them kind of fades back a little bit, or do you feel that the balance of that is actually a crucial part of, of living a full life? Yes. Um, it's maintaining balance, especially in today's culture I think is very difficult. And uh, it's certainly, I certainly lose my balance. I would say, I don't know, I would guess 20, 30 times a day. So, <laughs> oh, that's a relief. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for being human. <laughs> you know, there's definitely, you know, on the one hand, it's very difficult. See, what I really got out of the Zen monastery is I, I just realized what was most important, which is being awake. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm awake all the time, but I do know that that's the most important. And I do know that when I'm suffering, it's because I'm not awake, which is because I'm not practicing. So it's not easy, but... I'm pretty good at doing it every day and I'm pretty good, you know, those four practices that I mentioned earlier, starting with meditation. And, uh, and it also includes touching practices. You know, you asked about romance and attraction, Kate, you know, includes extended orgasm, includes touching practices, includes romantic practices, actually direct contact, physical practices with my wife. So, so that allows us to keep the, chemistry rolling. So there's nothing easy about it. It's very easy to fall out of balance. I think most people are extremely uh, out of balance. It's not a criticism of anybody. Um, but I, I think it's important to realize, you know, maybe we're not in our bodies. Maybe we're not prioritizing being present. Maybe uh, we're not acknowledging the importance of intimacy and connection and uh, vulnerability and communication and contact, even if we have uh, a lifelong romantic partner. Um, I'm wondering if, so thank you. That's a really great place to start with it. I want to keep pushing on this topic. I think this is just fantastic. I think it's a concept that maybe not a lot of people are aware of. You know, I, in my life, I recognize that it seems to me like there are people who more easily kind of spend all their time in their head, for example, or who are really embodied, but struggle to maybe have a big picture view of where they want to be in their life. Um, and I'm, so I, I'm relating that to what you're speaking to. And, um, 
my my question is, I want to know a little bit more about how you maybe teach people to create more balance or even become aware of where they exist in in the kind of paradigm um, at any given moment. And then if you can, I'd love to also hear a little bit more about extended orgasm and and if we could define that for our listeners and if you want to fold that in and see how that relates to this concept, that would be amazing. Okay, great. So how we work with people is we always start with what does the person want? And even if it's a couple, we work with singles and couples, but even if it's a couple, we, we work with each person individually. What do they want? Because people are motivated towards what they want. So that's the first step. And we aim to have that be a deep enough conversation so that it, it includes things like uh, intimacy, love, um, sexuality, you know, kind of deeper wants, if you will. And once people are really clear about that and, and, you know, vulnerable enough to acknowledge that and really feel that, maybe feel the lack of that if they have a lack of that, or even if that's going well, feel the desire for more of that, then the next step is really supporting people in realizing that being awake and being conscious is the access to that. It's not really tips and tricks and methods and skills it really is being awake that is the access to that because you know if you want to learn tennis you you got to be conscious on the tennis court to actually learn it and if you're conscious on the tennis court or the sexual bed if you will uh you know you're going to enjoy it more because the enjoyment really ultimately comes from the from the consciousness and the being not so much from the act of course there's pleasure in in sex and fine dining and we love all that stuff you know don't get me wrong you know i'm not a i'm not a you know i don't live in a cave and i'm not you know the biggest fan of that type of spirituality um so you know, we, that's the second step. And then once people realize that and they're in contact with themselves at a deeper level, their life, their presence, their being, what have you, then we get into skills training, you know, cause there is a place for skills training and, you know, what, how do, you know, what is communication? How do you do it? You know, for example, our, our teaching on communication is that good communication really has to include the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth and love and approval and warm heartedness. And if both of those aren't there, communications tend to fall flat. And so there is a place for skills training and sexual training. You know, you asked about extended orgasm. Then we get into that kind of skills training and extended orgasm is just it's just been the light of my life you know it's you know after alicia and our son aiden this practice you know maybe after alicia and our son aiden and my meditation practice this practice of extended orgasm as an almost daily practice you know sometimes we have a cold or we're on a trip or you know away from each other but basically a daily practice it is a practice of being present in the body with another person, optimizing the relating, optimizing the communication, optimizing the position, optimizing the actual, our bodies. So for example, the most dexterous part of my body, my index finger on the most sensitive part of her body, the corona of her clitoris, actually taking the most dexterous dexterous and the most sensitive and just optimizing everything. 
and spending some time doing that uh, every day. And what it does is the main thing is it's really, really fun. So, you know, having fun with one's partner, sexual fun. And then the other thing that it does is that it increases attraction and chemistry. That's kind of the sort of side effect or the fallout or kind of what it leads to. Um, and it's allowed us to be more turned on to each other, more attracted to each other, have better sex now than we did when we got together in 2003. And it was really hot. You know, it was really turned on in 2003. We had that whole like initial falling in love, a honeymoon period. And I was this sex guy and she was this, <laughs> you know, hot woman that I met and all that, you know, it was all that. And then, you know, this practice has just allowed that to, to increase. And, you know, it's, it's, I just thank my lucky stars that we do. It. I think it's awesome that you guys are continuing to find each other on this level. That's a, that's a really powerful thing to have in a relationship that's been, been going for a while. Um, I'm a little bit curious though. It, it sounds like you're describing this a little bit in the abstract and uh, some of what you're describing sounds a little bit like uh, orgasmic meditation, but is there a specific um, shape or container for this practice for you? Or are you guys just experimenting and see what works? You know, it's a, it's a good point, Haya. Orgasmic meditation, I had a girlfriend who I was with for uh, a while, and then she asked to teach with me, and she taught in our school for uh, six months. And then I had to ask her to leave our school because of certain integrity issues, some things I wasn't happy with in her conduct. And then she ended up forming uh, orgasmic meditation, but it really stems from uh, the practice uh, that I'm talking about, extended orgasm. And uh, in terms of what it looks like specifically, typically it's one person sitting up by the other person's side, one person's laying down, one person's sitting up. And then uh, the, uh, it's a stroking practice. But it's, that's kind of what it looks like in the basic form and how to take somebody up, how to take somebody down, all the signs of orgasm and voluntary contractions and all the rest of it so that it really is orgasm. So it's not edging or, uh, you know, something else. Edging is kind of like hold, you know, kind of not having an orgasm, sort of holding tension in the body. We wanted to really have release and have involuntary contractions and all of that. Um, so that's what it looks like uh, specifically, but it it really is extended orgasm. So it translates into all sex acts. Like Alicia, we do demonstrations of the practice in front of fifty or sixty people regularly. But what it um, what it really is, is being able to have extended orgasm in one's body whenever one wants. So it translates to all other sex acts, oral sex, intercourse. Alicia can go into a state of extended orgasm at will, you know, in a yoga class if she wants to. So it's not so much, a, you know, I can kind of paint a picture of it sitting up, sitting up by a partner's side, that kind of thing. But it really is the ability to be turned on at a level above what we could call the orgasm line, that level of sensation, and be released. Because people usually get above that level of sensation by holding a lot of tension. They tense, 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 and then they let go and they sort of crash over an edge. But for it to be extended orgasm, a person has to stay above that level of sensitivity 
and be relaxed and released at the same time uh, so that the orgasm continues, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Um, so hopefully that makes it a little less abstract. Yeah, for sure. So what if somebody says, hey, that sounds absolutely magnificent. I want that in my life. Uh, what do you, where do you start? How do you, how do you open yourself up to that as an experience? <laughs> you come to a, a course with Air One. <laughs> The the pleasure course is our flagship course. And I'll just, you know, you know, most people listening to the podcast may not end up in it. So I'll just give you the sort of basics of it now. You know, we start people um, with uh, finding their relationship blueprint. What is their psychological pattern? You could say their attachment style, if you like. Uh, you know, for example, my mother left. So, so mine was to hold on for dear life and simultaneously avoid. So it was a very kind of conflicted pattern. So for people to really locate that, really understand that, really feel that so that that is not playing out unconsciously, that's step one. Step two in our method is for the person to get in contact with their consciousness. So first they reveal their psychological patterning, then they get in contact with their consciousness, which is really where all the juice is. The third step uh, in the pleasure course is we explore masculine feminine dynamics, whether it's a male and a female or two males or two females, or, you know, there's a whole variety of genders. I love the question about gender pronouns. So it can be configured all different kinds of ways. And our experience is that there's got to be some difference for there to be polarity, for there to be spark and energy. And it doesn't matter whether it's male, female, or male, male, or female, female, or all the different configurations, but you do want to have some what we could call masculine energy, some feminine energy. You want to have some kind of difference, kind of like a battery has a positive end and a negative end for there to be charge. Being or life likes difference. It likes diversity so that there's um, charge. We get a lot of folks in today's uh, sort of more open culture who have lost their turn on because while they've become more open, they've actually lost the polarity. They've sometimes mistaked openness uh, or gender inclusion for sameness. And when there's sameness, there's not diversity and there's not that kind of difference and charge that's actually needed. Again, whatever the, 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 the sexes are and the genders are and so on. So then we work with people in that domain. And that's a very, very sensitive area. Uh, these days, because we don't want to go back to how it was in the 1950s, where it was kind of like, you know, just locked down in particular ways and, you know, dysfunctional masculinity, dysfunctional femininity and so on. But we do want to get the the chemistry rolling again. So the next step anyway, is getting the chemistry uh, rolling again. Then we go into the stages of relationship and a whole bunch of skills. How do you build an eternal date? How do you date? How do you pick somebody up? You know, how do you date? How do you have the middle game of relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, 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 boyfriend, boyfriend, that time. Then what are the skills for an eternal date? There's about a dozen of those. But one of them, 
is the extended orgasm piece. So we, we take everybody through all of that in three days. Then we do a demonstration of extended orgasm and we start them practicing. We don't do it. There's a few schools that have been derivatives of our school. We don't do it the way they do it, where they just kind of throw people into it. We don't think that's responsible or safe. So we move people through these these different places, then we do a demo. Then we very gradually have them start uh, not practicing extended orgasm, but practicing touching and practicing communicating and so on. And then if they're interested in the extended orgasm, there's advanced programs where they can, uh, where they can study that. But that's the sort of basic, um, you know, that's the basic flow of it. So much yummy good stuff in that. Um, I feel like there's so much to unpack. Um, I want to come back to what you're talking about, uh, this kind of sensitive area around masculine and femininity and polarity. And you, you know, you beautifully said that it doesn't necessarily have to be opposite sex or kind of this, um, you know, more sterile kind of like man and female, that's all there is. But, um, I, but that there needs to be some kind of a kinetic charge where there's some kind of difference. I want to just say that like, uh, so I am in a relationship with a man with Luke, but I've also been interested in exploring with women. But the, f- the first couple of times where we kind of dipped our toes into that, where I was connecting more sexually with women, I, one of the things that surprised me about that was how, how awkward I felt. I didn't know how to play a more masculine role. I didn't know how to connect with these feminine women because I had you know, for whatever reason, I had really grown up um, observing my role with men. And so I, I really knew how to flirt with men. I really knew how to be feminine. But then when I started to try and connect sexually with women, I, I definitely felt kind of off balance. And there was a lack of chemistry as a result of that at the beginning. And then as I developed this part of my sexuality, I was able to kind of lean into some of the more maybe stereotypical masculine traits of um, taking the lead or being more suggestive or these these different qualities. And then the chemistry was able to build more with women. So that I can totally relate to what you're talking about. And I'm fascinated by my own ability to kind of play with that within myself, even though I am a woman and I identify as female. Um, within me, there's a range in, in my ability to create that polarity. And I'm curious whether you've experienced that yourself, or if you have others that you recognize that with, and do you work with couples to build, um, that polarity if they're not experiencing it? Yes. Already. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> you know, we all have masculine and feminine qualities and it's very important to explore them. And nobody really wants to be kind of locked in, some prescriptive way of being you should be this way you should dress this way you should talk this way Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very limiting and uh, I love what you said about when you're exploring with women it's one of the things it's providing for you is an opportunity to explore uh, more what might be considered masculine qualities because those are of all of us. I have feminine qualities, masculine mm-hmm. qualities. You have feminine qualities, masculine qualities. And it's nice to have the range and explore them because in different situations, different ones are required. You know, when you're at work, uh, you know, sometimes some mass, more masculine qualities might be required for different types of work, maybe some more feminine qualities. You know? mm-hmm. So that's nice. And then it's, 
then we just have preferences, kind of how we like to be, how we prefer. You know, we could say the gender we prefer to identify with most of the time or after work or on Sundays. But on Mondays, I like to identify this way, you know. So it's just nice to have the freedom. And most people do have certain preferences with that. And when you've got that kind of freedom, you also have the freedom to, as you described, um, go into a more feminine or masculine way of being to create some difference in diversity and some electrical charge, some sexual energy uh, in whatever the particular uh, encounter is. For example, you talked about uh, leading or being suggestive. Often, not always, but often the feminine likes to be what we call out of fat or relaxed or, let's say, well handled. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, that requires kind of, you <laughs> mm-hmm. know, attention and maybe leading and suggesting. And, you know, if it's going to a restaurant, would you, you know, like to go to this restaurant or this restaurant or this restaurant? You know, it, 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 provides it's a certain gentlemanly way of being you could say and it's nice to have that range and have that capacity and not uh you know not be sort of stuck on one end of the spectrum yeah for sure and i think there's a really interesting thing that happens in erotic play as well if you choose uh, especially if it's a it's a, a male female encounter if you choose to swap roles it's like hey for this next encounter uh, I am going to lean into my feminine and you can lean into your masculine and let's see what happens. There's something really fun and and, and um, fruitful that happens there. It's very liberating. Um, and, it, it you know, we're sort of a school of consciousness, even though romance and extended orgasm is our kind of forte, if you will. But doing what you're talking about allows for qualities of being or qualities of consciousness that we might be shy to express to actually be expressed if you're you know tenderness or love are sometimes considered feminine qualities so if you're free to play in on both sides of the equation you actually can contact qualities of being that you know we might not be able to contact if we weren't if we didn't have that kind of uh freedom if we were more locked down yeah absolutely hey i think we could continue talking for the rest of the day but we're actually coming up to the end of our time and there's a couple of um questions i'd like to close with if that's fine by you sure what is the one song that you can't not dance to you know oddly enough it's the soft parade by the doors (laughs) nice i think that was the fastest anyone has answered that question that was fantastic (laughs) (laughs) you know and it's I feel a little strange saying that because it's really not a dance song. <laughs> you know, it changes tempo and it's Jim Morrison going into like poetry and part of it. Um, but it, it just kind of gets a certain rhythm and it just gets going a certain way. And it's, it, 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 it just always gets me moving. Um, it's so visceral. Uh, it it just really gets me moving. And I usually listen to, it's probably my most listened to song. I usually listen to it when I'm in the car driving and then I'm sort of dancing in my seat, kind of, kind of moving around, you know, probably looks pretty weird actually. That makes perfect sense. Hey, thank you so much for being so 
heart open and vulnerable and and for showing up like this it's it's been a really good interview and i've really enjoyed it thank you yeah you're welcome such a pleasure erwan thank you for coming on yeah yeah absolutely for more information about the human awareness institute or our workshops visit our website at hi.org that's h-a-i.org thank you so much for listening to may i have this dance it was a pleasure to have you with us See you soon. Bye-bye.